All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 7. I'm wearing some red, white, and blue today because uh, of the Olympics and the United States uh, men's track and field middle distance group has put on a show uh, unlike any other time. They've won a medal in the 800, the uh, 1500, the 3,000-meter steeplechase, the men's 5,000 silvers and all of those except in the 1500. Matt Centrowitz won the gold yesterday, the first time since 1908 that's happened. I'm a track uh, geek, and that's my old event, so I'm, I'm excited today. Got a gold yesterday. That's I didn't, but he did, and that's awesome. <laughs> but um, I'm excited about that. Luke chapter 7, what um, Angie just read just a minute ago, and while you're getting there, obviously we live in Nashville, and so every now and then i got to try to work in uh, a country music reference, and so we'll start with one today. Several years ago, there was a song, um, at least sung by, I don't know who it was written by, but sung by Tim McGraw, that talked about just the kind of idea like, um, uh, live like you're dying. And so the whole premise is like someone's gotten a, um, he's gotten a, a diagnosis and so he talks about all these things he's going to do, all this bucket list of stuff. So he talks about how he went skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu and uh, loved deeper and spoke sweeter and gave forgiveness that he'd been denying and he hopes you get the chance to, to live like you're dying. And so the whole idea of that song is to, to live in a way that reflects the reality of, of your life. All right? For him, that reality was a diagnosis, but still, that, that reality affected the way he lived his life, and he lived his life in a way based upon that reality. And in the text that we've got before us, Luke chapter 7 today, that's kind of the driving idea behind it, is that we would live a life based upon the reality that we have in Christ, that we've been forgiven, and that should change the way we live our life, that we're, you know, and it's not just this idea, just kind of this little idea of, of, of you know, Johnny be nice, and, and you know, we've got some pixie dust, um, nice dust from a fairy tale fake Jesus, but that we've been released from hell by the warrior king, like a big deal has happened. It's not just this little thing, a big deal has happened. The debt that we owed for our sin has been paid. The beef that we have with God has been crushed. The atonement has been made. We've been now adopted into the family of God. and We are extravagantly loved and not on the basis of anything that we've done, but totally and only on the basis of what Jesus did for us in Christ freely and willingly. And so the whole point of this is that we would live in light of that. We would love as if we've been forgiven. We've been set free. And so this morning what I want to do is, and it's not you know, going to be as maybe spit-shined and polished as normal. It's kind of one narrative and it's hard to kind of break up the flow. So what I want to do is I just want to kind of go through the story with us and then talk about a few observations that I had of the text this week. A few things that stood out to me in particular uh, as I looked up at it. So it may be a little bit different flow-wise, but I pray that the Word would use it in our hearts and our lives to make us more like Him and more useful in His hands. And so uh, let's pray again and then we'll just jump into this text. Father God, 
Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, come and illuminate our hearts and our eyes to understand and see what it is that you inspired to be written. Help us to not just know the truth, but live the truth. And let us not sit in here and, 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 and hear things and seek to apply them to someone that we know. Oh, it'd be great if they heard. Let us first apply this to ourselves. Search us, O oh God, and see the wicked ways and grievous ways that are in our hearts. Help us to see those and lead us in the way everlasting. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior our Lord, our God, our King, that we pray. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, let's just jump into this. We'll make our way through and we'll uh, make a couple observations at the end. Verse 36, here we go. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, all right, that's a, that, that word when it comes in there, that, that's a shocking word. They're saying this is out of the ordinary. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And so the context here is Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. The guy's name is Simon. All right, and this is there. There's kind of a similar uh, story in uh, Matthew and Mark and John, but it's it's similar, but it's different. It's not the same event. Those take place in the last week of Jesus's life. This is way early in his ministry, so it's not the same thing. But he's there at this Pharisee named Simon's house, and so Jesus would always. I mean, he's always being accused by the Pharisees of eating and and hanging out with drunks and tax collectors. But here Jesus is has been invited by a Pharisee and he goes into his house. So he ate with the drunks and the tax collectors and he ate with the legalists and the Pharisees as well. His grace knows no bounds. He, his grace goes out to all. And so he would eat with anybody and then he'd get across the table from anybody and he'd discuss with them. And I'm, I could preach a whole sermon on that, but that's not what we're going to do today. But here he is, he's at this Pharisee's house. And the way that they ate uh, was not that different from the way a lot of times we ate in Central Asia. Um, the, in, in Central Asia, a lot of times what happens is you, traditionally you eat on uh, the ground and there's blankets and there's pillows or whatnot and there's a low table or it's just straight up on the floor and you're kind of lounging around and you'll be there for a long time. And uh, predominantly you sit in what my kids call crisscross applesauce, which I call knee breakers because you can't stay there in that position very long before your meniscus feel like, feels like it's starting to tear. And so Jesus, that's not what they did in their time frame. They did sit on a low deal like that with a low table, but they usually leaned uh, on, on an elbow, kind of propped up on, on an elbow with their feet away from the table and they would stay there for a while. And when you're invited to dinner in a situation like this, it wasn't like, um, you know, when someone comes over to your house now, it was more like a block party. It was open. People knew that you were there. Doors were open. It was usually in an outdoor courtyard area. And so that's the situation that's going on here. And so it was not uncommon 
for uninvited people to stop by, say hello, hang out for a minute. Not uncommon at all. But what was uncommon, like awkwardly uncommon, to the point that they put this, Luke puts this behold in here, shocking, there's an awkwardly uncommon moment happening here. What it is, is who showed up. And it was a woman of the city, a.k.a. a prostitute. And so this prostitute shows up at the Pharisee's house. And it's just an awkward moment. And the, the context seems to indicate that she's already trusted Jesus for salvation. Because when we get down to verse 48, he's going to say, Jesus is going to say to her, your sins are forgiven. And he says that in a perfect tense, which means it's happened in the past and it has continuing action to today and to the future. So it seems she's already had an encounter with the life-giving message of the Gospel and she's accepted Jesus' free gift of salvation. But now she's heard that He's at this house and she wants to go and see Him. She wants to go and, and like knowing she's going to be scorned by these Pharisees, she doesn't care. She just wants to be near Jesus and show her thankfulness and her gratitude and her humility and, and just gratitude for what He's done for her, for the forgiveness that He has given to her. And so she comes in to worship. And to be honest, it's kind of awkward. Like sometimes we don't let the Bible shock us like we should. This is kind of an awkward situation. And it's doubly awkward to us because this is not our culture. This is a different culture. So you got the culture awkwardness, but then the people who are in attendance... It's kind of awkward for them as well. Because just think about it. I mean, she walks into this place. Behold, like that's a shocking thing. She's there. Here's a prostitute in the Pharisee's house. So she walks in. You could probably have heard a pin drop. People are, what? So the Pharisee's freaking out internally. His wife has probably passed out that she walked in. And she's got this, you know, she's a hostess trying to do this, this deal. And so it's awkward, and then she starts crying. Like crying tears of joy at her forgiveness and regret of her life and pain. And not like a little cry, you know. Sometimes when I'm up here worshiping, I'll have a tear, but ugly cry. She snot, ugly cry here. Big, ugly cry. I mean, it. Matter of fact, the word that's, that, that, they, that they use for cry here is the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 2, verse 18, where he's talking of, of the weeping of the mothers when Herod slaughters all of the infants in Bethlehem to and under. That's the same word. That's the kind of weeping that's being uh, spoken of here. And so in the presence of her Savior, she just begins to bawl her eyes out. And then literally in the Greek, it's, it talks about she's raining tears. Her, her eyes are just flowing off to the point that, that, that this, as Martin Luther calls it, um, heart water. All right. This heart water, tears from her heart is, are raining down so much that it wets his feet enough that she can wash them. That's how much, that's how many tears are, are coming down. It's literally raining tears. And so she's just overwhelmed at what Christ has done, the forgiveness he's given to her. She's crying. She starts washing his feet. And then in that culture, she does almost the unthinkable and she lets down her hair. 
Now, biblically, there's no commandment against hair. Like all you people with your hair down, you're okay today. Okay? But in that culture, the rabbis had started this, this teaching of Pharisees that, that a woman was to keep her hair up at all times. And if she let her hair down and someone else saw that, that was equivalent to exposing herself and was grounds for divorce, according to the rabbis. And so here she is in this environment. Prostitute walked in. She's crying. She's washing feet. Now she lets down her hair. People are really freaking out. And she starts using, because there's no towel, she starts using her hair to, to wash his feet and, and, and dry his feet. And so she's just lost in self-forgetfulness and just wonderment of Jesus, just worshiping Him and being overwhelmed at who He is and what He's done for her. And she just starts serving Him in even the lowliest of ways. Washing the feet was a job of a slave. And then she pulls out probably what is the most precious thing that she owns. An alabaster flask of ointment is perfume. Like B.O. was bad in the day and nobody had right guard. So people carried perfume around. Uh, women would sometimes wear a vial around their neck, but this is something special. It's in an alabaster uh, container. It's very, very expensive. And what does she do? She pours it out on Jesus' feet. The, the most precious thing that she owned, she poured it out for Jesus. That's another one we could camp out on for a while. What are you pouring out for Jesus? What, how, are you pouring out generosity? Are you pouring out service? What are you pouring, pouring out for Jesus? And so you just kind of got this awkward scene and to show her humility, she's kissing Jesus' feet. But Jesus sees through the awkwardness of her worship and sees the heart behind it and accepts her worship. But in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, all right, this isn't out loud, this is just in his mind. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, answering, said to him, Simon, that's how I think he said it. I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so this is kind of ironic here. Simon's decided, since Jesus doesn't know who this... He thinks Jesus doesn't know who this lady is, and so he's like, he can't be a prophet. In, in the meantime, Jesus is reading his mind and is going to answer his thoughts. And so verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. And denarii is a, uh, it's a day's wage for one person. So one person owes 50 days worth, and the other one, 500 days worth over a year. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in and she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." 
for she loved much. And the love is the consequence of, not the cause of, her forgiveness. It flows out of it. She's already been forgiven, and now she's loving out of that. But he who is forgiven, so, so she loved much based upon what she had done, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I'm so glad Jesus reminds us of that over and over and over, because I'm forgetful. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Luke's helping us see Jesus, who he says he is. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so the the whole point Jesus is making here is, Simon, you're right. She is a sinner. No doubt about it. Absolutely. That is who she is. But so are you, Simon. So are you. You also are a sinner. And she's responded to the Gospel and my offer of forgiveness through faith and now living a life that flows from that. A life of gratitude and a, a love fueled by what I've done for her. But you, you don't really even care. You don't even really care. You're, you're, you're indifferent to the fact that I'm in your home. You're apathetic towards me. Simon, so, mean, this is your party and you didn't even do the most basic and just normal acts of courtesy towards me when I entered your home. You invited me in, but you didn't welcome me. Yet this woman of the street, Simon, she went out of her way and at great sacrifice and cost to herself showed the love that she had for me. And you didn't see just basic things. You didn't see to it that my feet were washed, yet she came and washed them with her tears and her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting when I came in, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet. Simon didn't do even the most basic of courtesies. And folks, if we could be honest with ourselves, this is the way we live a whole lot of the time. We don't treat Jesus which is even the most basic of courtesies. Just even the most basic of worship. And some of us in here don't gather regularly with God's people. It's just kind of a hit or miss when it fits my schedule and I'll make it work. When Jesus has told us, don't forsake assembling together. Others of us don't talk to Him in prayer. Basic things. We don't talk to Him in prayer. We don't hear from Him through His Word, through the Holy Bible. We don't we don't spend time with Him. Just basic stuff. We abuse His name and, 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 and belittle His holiness with making OMG, an emoticon, and using it like, that's His name, that's His holiness. Just basic courtesies. But this lady of the city, this prostitute, she worships, worships Jesus with all that she is. And all that she has. Why? Like, what's the difference? What's the difference? What, what is her overwhelming delight in Jesus driven by? It's driven by her recognition of who she was. Who she had been. Of her sinfulness. Of her depravity. And that's one of the things that struck me this week as I was 
studying this. It's only in first recognizing our depravity that we're able to delight in what Jesus has done for us. Like We've got to go low in order to get high. You've got to first understand from where He's taking you to understand that the heights of who He is. A lot of times we don't understand the, the height of Jesus' magnificence because we fail to understand the depth of our malevolence, the depth of our depravity. And so number one in your notes, kind of the observation, recognition of depravity drives delight. Recognition of depravity drives delight. It, it drives delight. Everybody look right at me for a minute. If you don't think that you're really that bad of a person, then Jesus really isn't that great of a Savior. I mean, if you're pretty good, you're, you're a pretty good person, you know, we, we'd, never, we'd never admit this, we just almost functionally live it out a lot of times, we just kind of basically, you know, well, thanks Jesus, yes, you got me over the hump, uh, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good guy, but I did need a little bit of help because I couldn't quite, you know, I do have this, but, but I appreciate it, thank you, you know, thanks for getting me over the hump, but, but that's not a big deal, I'm pretty good, it's not something I'm going to build my life around, I'm not going to build my life around this little bit of help that I got from Jesus, I mean, that'd be ridiculous. Why build your life around something that's really not that big of a deal? Just kind of helps you get over, you know, it's a little cherry on top, help you get over the last little hump. Like in that train of thought, essentially you did 90% of the work. You're a good person. You're moral. You do good things. You get choked up when Sarah McLaughlin comes on TV singing about the suffering dogs. You, you have a good heart. And so at the end of the day, you believe that you're a good person and just needed just a little bit of help to, to, to you know, from, from really kind of a fairly impotent Jesus to kind of get over the hill. Just a little bit of help. But if you see the truth of Scripture and the absolute cesspool that we are outside of Christ, if you get the depth of your depravity and the wrath that you deserve and the eternal hell that you deserve, and then you get that you've been forgiven, that you've been released from that freely and willingly and fully, that there's nothing left to pay, that Jesus has paid it all and He's adopted you into His family and He's made you new, if you get that truth, That'll make you live your life and stake your life on Christ. If you get that truth, that'll make you live grateful. If you get that truth, that'll make you delight in Christ as your treasure and as your Redeemer and your all-encompassing hero and hub of life. Understanding what, who you were, understanding the, the depth of our sin will drive us to understand the height of what we've been given, what we deserve and what we've been given. Philip Ryken, Presbyterian pastor, puts it like this, the, the more we feel that we do not need to be forgiven, the more self-righteous we become. And the more self-righteous we become, the less love we give. We only do the minimum. We do not pour out our lives like fragrant perfume. If we love Jesus so little, 
it can only be because we have little idea how much we've been forgiven. The way to get a better idea about this is not to go out and become bigger sinners. All we need to do is see how big our sins already are. This means being honest about the sinfulness of our worry, our greed, our gossip, our prejudice, our idolatry, our rage. And it means coming back to God again and again and again in repentance, even after we first come to Christ. And it's not about becoming bigger sinners, but realizing how big our sin already is. And so we did a little English earlier. So now let's do some math. Back in school, everybody's getting used to school. So we did English, talked about perfect tense. Now let's do a little bit of math. 50 denarii times infinity is what? Infinity. 500 denarii times infinity is what? Infinity. And so it doesn't matter if you have 50 sins, or you have 500 sins, or you have a billion sins, multiplied by infinity, it's still Infinity. And so it doesn't matter the size of the sin, it matters the size of the one you sinned against. And since the size of the one you sinned against is infinite, then each and every one of our sins has infinite cost and is deserving of infinite punishment. That's why hell is eternal. That's what sin is. It's not just a little, little this. You've sinned against the infinite, eternal, holy of holies. And He's just. And sin will be punished. There's a debt. And it will either be paid in hell or it will be paid on the cross of Christ. And so since God is an infinite God and He's infinite in every attribute, every sin is a sin of infinite treachery and infinite rebellion and infinite wickedness. There's a debt. And so every month I get this horrible envelope in the mail from a mortgage company. I hate that thing. And it reminds me of how much money I owe this certain company. What if God sent you a bill each month for your debt? Here's how much you lusted. Here's how much you coveted. Here's how much idolatry you committed, valuing people and possessions and prestige, and popularity, and, and, and positions over me. And you didn't give as I called you to give. You didn't live generously, and you, you didn't share me with anybody. Heck, you didn't even invite anyone to, to church. You didn't love your neighbor as yourself, and, and here's where you didn't uh, live as one with your spouse, and you didn't die daily to yourself, and, and here's where you didn't... Um, uh, pour out your life for your children and teach them the gospel and discipline them and show them how much uh, you love them. And fathers, you showed them a picture of what I'm like. 
What if God took account of all of your sin, past, present, and future, and put it on a ledger? What would that look like? All of the self-righteous thoughts of your life? And here's the deal, if you can't think of any self-righteous thoughts, that just shows how self-righteous you are. You're blind to your... You realize you can be self-righteous of self-righteous people, right? Oh, they're self-righteous. So imagine that this is on this huge ledger. I mean, this is my list. It's going to go around the world in eight-point font. Times New Roman. Single space. So you've got this ledger. You've got this debt. And Jesus has come to forgive you. Like that should do something to you, inside of you. Give you heart water that flows out of your life. You've been forgiven in Christ. Like He took it. That debt. The dirty shirt. He took it. And He gives you a clean shirt. He takes your sin. He gives you His righteousness. Like Your sin, my sin, it cost the Son of God His life to forgive it. Now, it didn't force him to have to do that. He did that willingly and freely of his own volition in love and in grace and in mercy. But that's what it took for your sin, my sin, to be forgiven. And he willingly did it. Willingly rescuing, living a life that we haven't, a life without sin, dying a death that we deserve, death for sin, and rising to give us a gift we could never earn forgiveness of that sin. And so there's a debt. And being honest, some of you will pay that debt in hell. I don't like saying that. But that's what the Bible says. But then for other, others of you, that debt has already been paid. When Jesus exclaimed, it is finished, He meant it. The debt was done. He's paid it all. There's nothing left to do. And so the reason a lot of times that we don't see, again, the height of Jesus' magnificence is because we don't recognize the depth of our malevolence, the, the, the depravity of our sin, that it's not just what we do, it's who we are. It goes to the core of our being. But when we get that recognition of depravity, it'll drive delight in Christ for what He's done for us. The lady of the night, the lady of the city, she got it. She knew she was a sinner, and so she worshipped. She loved much. But the Pharisee, he thought he was pretty good. So he loved little. He didn't think he needed forgiveness. What about you? Don't play pretend here. See your sin in all of its horror so that you can see Christ in all of His glory. Love much because you've been forgiven much. And so that's, that's the first kind of major observation that struck me this week. Recognition of depravity drives delight. But then the second is, and I don't even really know how to categorize this. This is how I kind of told you it's not all spit, spit shined and polished and, and, and 
you know, in a perfect presentable form. But the other thing that just struck me was the question that Jesus asked Simon in verse 44. Look at that. Verse 44. Very simple question. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, on the one hand, I get what he's doing. He's absolutely, I mean, it's just, a, it's an example. He's, he's a, you know, of course Simon saw this woman. Jesus, she was right there. He had seen her. And when she walked in, you know, he freaked out about it. Why is she coming into my house? So he, of course he's seen her. And Jesus is pointing to her as an illustration of his grace and forgiveness and how he transforms lives and makes people new. So of course Simon sees her. But on the other hand, Simon didn't see her at all. Because he couldn't see her as she then was. She could only see her as she had been. He couldn't see past her sin to see who she truly was. He he was viewing her through the lens of damning religion that says God loves good people instead of through the lens of the Gospel that says Jesus is a friend of sinners. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor and proclaim liberty to the captives and give sight to the blind and give freedom to the oppressed. Simon saw her through the lens of religion and saw, only saw someone condemnable and shamed and, and stained. And when you do that, when I do that, when we look at people through religious eyes, we don't see them at all. We don't see someone made in the image and likeness of God. We don't see someone who needs to learn about the grace and the love and forgiveness of Jesus. We don't see someone whose debt can be canceled and whose lives can be transformed. And so let's just turn this on ourselves for a minute. Which one of these two people are you more like? And don't play pretend. Are you more like the woman who came to Jesus with the joy of a forgiven sinner, delighting in what in who Jesus is and what He's done for her? Or are you more like the man who thought that some people were not even good enough to be forgiven? What's your disposition? How do you view people? And one of the ways to test this is by looking at how you respond to the people that we think of as sinners. And Jesus doesn't deny her sin. He says, you know, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many. He's not denying the nature of sinfulness. But but how do we treat people? We're all sinners, but those that we think of those that boom we, we automatically you know self-righteous and we label oh that one's a bigger sin than this one and we we view them that way because we do it don't 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 be here and be you know oh i don't do that yeah you do you're doing it right now by judging me so how do we test this we test this by looking at how we respond to people that we think of as sinners how we speak about them how we treat them, 
the words that we use, the tone with which we say things, what we do or fail to do to show them the love of Christ, this will show you your true understanding of God and His grace. And the true understanding of whether or not you recognize your own depravity. Because Eric Mason puts it like this, at the foot of the cross, we're all just a bunch of different looking sinners in need of the same looking cross. And Jesus has paid the way. He's taken the dirty shirt. He's given us the clean shirt. He's canceled the debt for all who believe prostitutes and Pharisees alike. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your incredible gift that we cannot fathom, Lord. This life we cannot even get. Lord, help us. Would You help us to see the depth of our depravity so that we might see the height of Your glory. We might see the infinite gift we've been given because of the infinite debt we owe. And would You help us, Lord, to see people. To see people as You see people. Yes, we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. But not view them in in light with self-righteous, derogatory, condemning, holier-than-thou attitude. But as someone who You made on purpose and whom You want to bring home. You want to call to Yourself. Someone who life can be transformed. And would we be an agent of grace in a world of hostility and in a world of hate? Help us. In Jesus' name, Amen.